So welcome everyone to today's show. It is Sunday, May 8th. It is the afternoon before Victory Day in Russia, and everyone's awaiting what announcements, if any, Putin may be planning for his Victory Day parade speech. I'm Dmitry Alperovich, chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitical think tank in Washington, D.C., and with me again is Michael Kaufman, an expert on the Russian military and a research program director in the Russia Studies Program at the Center for Naval Analysis. Uh, we'll get one more very special guest, hopefully very shortly. But Mike, why don't we start with you? Lots has been happening this week, um, in particular with the Donbass Offensive. Um, uh, there, there's been some uh, late breaking news today that the uh, city of Hapasna uh, has been taken by the Russians, or the, the Ukrainians at least withdrew there. Uh, this has been confirmed by Rostovich, the um, Ukrainian presidential advisor. Um, he also said today, or last night, I should say, that Severodonetsk and Rubezhny uh, may be under major threat. Um, talk to us about what you see happening in the Donbass and the importance of these developments. Okay, thanks, Mitri. Uh, let me kind of just paint a picture of what's been going on, at least from my perspective, from the past week. Uh, by the way, mute yourself so you don't hear you typing. Um, so first to the north around Kharkiv, there's been an ongoing Ukrainian counteroffensive, and it's been fairly successful. I think their main goal has been to push Russian artillery away from the city, and they finally have gotten the city essentially cleared at such a range that it can't be hit by a lot of the Russian artillery that was deployed in this buffer zone the Russian forces were trying to occupy inside of Ukraine. And because Russian forces there are pretty spread out, it looks like they abandoned uh, Star Saltiv and have been slowly being pushed out by Ukrainian forces who have a decent chance of reaching the border because just the sparsity of, of Russian forces up in the north. Uh, Russian forces along the general offensive, you know, the sort of Siversky Donetsk line, haven't been able to gain much ground in the past week. And I think we've been debating as a local community as to why. You can interpret it a couple different ways. Obviously, there's incredibly stiff Ukrainian resistance, and the correlation of forces isn't that especially favorable to the Russian offensives. On the other hand, they supposedly had concentrated quite a bit of military power there. So I think my personal sense on it, uh, this is based on very imperfect information, is that the Russian military has been pretty cautious and oriented towards reducing losses in this offensive. And they've been fighting a bit more organized and coordinated, but mostly leveraging fires and trying to avoid uh, further loss of manpower. Uh, what we can't really tell, I think, as well as how Russian forces have been distributed along the northern line of this offensive. It's a pretty long battlefield in the north, spanning all the way from Izum around Severodonetsk down to Popasna, and that's just the northern side of the fight. Uh, I think we're all guessing on what the concentrations of BTGs really are and where they are distributed and what's actually in a BTG at this point that is, was the end strength of their unit. So right now, what I think is clear, and this I think is the important takeaway, that the main Russian effort has shifted away from Azum, and it shifted towards Severodonetsk, and they've likely shifted forces behind the two. That means probably more focus uh, on uh, Liman and Yampil, but, but especially the uh, Severodonetsk and uh, Yisikshansk. And there's been a Ukrainian counterattack west of Azum, 
but slowly kind of inching towards uh, Russian supply lines. But it's not really clear what's going on there at this point or how much progress they've made. I suspect that Gerasimov showed up a week ago to get things straightened out in this offensive because it wasn't making much progress. And I'm going to speculate a bit here that he likely introduced some changes and the shift to the overall effort because they were trying a double envelopment, one around uh, Savyansk and Kramatorsk, and another one to try to sever Sever Donetsk from the rest of the Ukrainian lines. And that clearly wasn't working out. Probably didn't have force, enough forces for it, what have you. So the latest is, yes, that uh, Russian forces, or I think more specifically Wagner, which just seems to be uh, the one area where the PMCs are fighting, took Papasna. Most likely Ukrainian forces conducted a tactical retreat there and are further north around uh, Severodonetsk. Russian forces are also in some part of Rubizhna, although it's not clear what part of the city they, they've entered. And if I sort of look further south, these are mostly fixing attacks. Uh, if you look towards this whole long line uh, in Zaporizhia, uh, fighting uh, between Russian and Ukrainian forces, it looks still at the main Russian offense, uh, objective is probably uh, Vidika Novosilka, but they haven't made much success in the south. I don't think that the southern military district has a lot of manpower available towards their attack, those attacks, and they probably still are waiting to to resolve the situation down in Azovstal and Mariupol. So, uh, general takeaway is that this offensive is probably going to drag on. It's going to drag on for some time. And we're going to see numerous counter counterattacks by the Ukrainian forces as it goes on. And it's not going to be clear necessarily uh, how things are shaking out in just the coming days or even, the, or, or even perhaps weeks. But I think it's safe to say that given the forces the Russian military has available, how they're employing them and the Ukrainian resistance, there aren't there are not likely to be any sudden or major breakthroughs. And I think that was pretty predicted, predictable and predicted by a number of analysts looking at this problem set. Okay. That's I think I've taken enough time at a kind of introduction. <laughs> no, it's great. Uh, a couple of follow-up questions. One you know, Izum has been such a major logistic hubs for them, obviously major rail links going into that city. Uh, what do you think it means that they've kind of stopped uh, or, or um, decreased their activity in that area and have been subjected to Ukrainian counterattacks? Can that endanger from a logistics perspective the entire Donbass offensive? Uh, not necessarily, to be honest. Um First, it just remains to be seen whether whether the Ukrainian military has the ability to interdict those ground lines of communication. But second, if they shift a lot of the effort towards uh, Severodonetsk, then it's a bit of a different conversation because then they're likely pursuing an entirely different operational approach into how they're trying to try to take the Donbass. It's clear that things are not working out for them well south of Azum. For a number of reasons, and like I said, we're, we're kind of debating the causes. So I'm probably looking at the map. I would be much more concerned if I was the Russian military about the Ukrainian counteroffensive by Zoom, uh, far less concerned about the one north by Kharkiv because they're not really running uh, the logistics or rail line anywhere directly near there. Got it. And uh, with regards to uh, Severodonetsk, Rubezhne, 
and Papasna, you know, that Aristovich talks about, uh, are those strategic points? Uh, how critical is it that the Ukrainians are falling back? So, um, I mean, Rubizna basically suggests that they're inching closer and closer uh, from the north to Sierra Donetsk. Papasna is strategic because, you know, one of the main Russian efforts is to try to break through at that southern point there and then clinch Ukrainian lines to try to sever the connection with Severodonetsk and at the same time try to potentially break through south around Yampil. Uh, if you look at Yampil, Yampil is between kind of Slavyansk and, and Yisichansk, and you can kind of picture uh, a pincer movement, one from Papasna and one coming down through Yampil. But they've been moving incredibly slowly, right? And they've, they've been taking these towns, or to what extent they've been taking them versus Ukrainians have just been retreating from them, but at an incredibly slow pace. So it's, I think it's given the Ukrainian military plenty of time to react and figure out what they want to do. So, you know, I, I don't think you're going to see a sudden breakthrough and a rapid encirclement of Ukrainian forces, although it's pretty clear what the Russian military is trying to do. And how long do you think they can continue this offensive? Uh, you know, at what point uh, they're, they're taking significant casualties, obviously, right now, particularly in equipment. Uh, can they keep this going for months? Can they keep this going for weeks? Uh, what's your sense of their ability to to continue major operations? I mean, so I don't know, because a lot you don't know about the actual state of Russian forces and how well they're supplied and what the uh, morale is. But I, I actually think they can sustain it for a while. And I'll tell you why. I think part of the reason they're advancing slowly is because they're in a lot of areas they're not committing and they're doing a lot of reconnaissance and then when they make contact they retreat and then they leverage artillery fires to try to degrade ukrainian positions and suppress them so to put it in kind of glib terms they're playing this quite differently than they had uh the first phase of the war and even though they still have visible issues in in the overall performance I think they're trying to minimize casualties, and that might be why they're advancing slowly. I mean, you could also read it a different way, which is that uh, their will to their will and desire to fight is much lower in there, and that's also why there isn't sort of this great enthusiasm, perhaps, amongst the forces for the offensive. But that's just speculation. I, I'm far less concerned about the logistical equation. I'll be very honest. Whenever we get into these conversations about what's happening in the war. People will often use logistics as a kind of hand-waving device. And I'm not seeing a lot of problems in terms of ammunition supply for Russian artillery. And so my basic view is, unless you know something specific that's going on with logistics, please do not tie problematic logistics as a cause of some kind of outcome. Like if we don't know, let's say we don't know, but let's not hand-wave and say logistics aren't good when we actually have no idea what's going on with logistics. Now, the one other thing that uh, a lot of people have, have talked about before this war began was weather and mud, right? A lot of mud experts turned up on Twitter uh, talking about uh, the mud in Ukraine in the springtime. Uh, what's your sense of uh, the weather affecting operations, their ability to do off-roading? Any concerns there? I mean, it's getting pretty dry, but it's, it's pretty, but it's a mix. And, and then there's also issues, other issues with off-roading. You know, for example, there's minefields. You see plenty of videos of Russian vehicles running into Ukrainian mines. 
So uh, you can easily funnel a force by organizing your defense around key ground, ground lines of communications and then putting down mines and other sectors. I, I'm kind of increasingly seeing a mix of Russian forces using roads, but also maneuvering off-road. So it does, does look as though uh, the terrain is at least partially drying out in some areas. But I, I don't see it necessarily as the, as the decisive factor or, as, or the, the significant factor. And, you know, the people who are talking about mud in the run-up to the war, remember, um, I was involved in that conversation. Uh, they were right. It's just it's always wrong to fixate on any one specific thing as being deterministic. And don't forget something very important. Weather affects both sides. It may not necessarily affect them equally or evenly, but it affects both sides. Okay, It's not like there's mud and the mud only affects the Russian ability to maneuver, but not the Ukraine ability to counterattack because Ukraine has hover tanks. That's not true. What's your take on mobilization? Um, we had uh, an interesting video come up yesterday on Channel One from um, someone named Mikhail uh, Khodarnuk, uh, I think a reservist um, officer in the Russian military, who was talking actually very negatively about mobilization, saying that uh, it won't uh, really change things on the ground. But he was kind of fixating on the wrong things. Uh, in some ways, he was talking about uh, building ships that takes years, uh, building uh, air squadrons um, that's going to take a long time. But then he actually said, well, you know, tank division will take us 90 days to bring up. Um, and that to me uh, <laughs> seemed very interesting. If they, they could actually bring up a new tank division and throw it into the fight within 90 days, uh, that could be very significant. Do you think that's actually plausible? Do you think that they're going to need some sort of mobilization, maybe not a full mobilization? What, what are your thoughts overall on this mobilization question? Yeah, this conversation has uh, really livened up in the past week. You know, remember uh, a, long, a long time ago, at least, at least as far as this war has gone, I had mentioned that because the Russian military is trying to fight this war at peacetime strength, this is likely to be their uh, last offensive for the simple reason that they do not have the manpower availability. They don't have the force structure to sustain further offensive operations beyond this one. And it's going to be a challenge for them to just uh, uh, sustain this conflict as it stands. And so they will need a way to raise manning across the force, even just to rotate forces through Ukraine. Um, and very likely without some form of partial mobilization, uh, they stand a, a strong chance of losing, even with mobilization. It, it's not a magic wand. It doesn't necessarily change Russian forces. But I, I don't think the conversation on mobilization is framed right in terms of what it is, what it does, and what it means. Uh, first, the real question is whether or not Vladimir Putin will declare a general state of war, as opposed to continuing to try to fight this as a special operation. And there's a huge difference for that. There's no rule of law in Russia, but Russia's in insanely procedural state, and these things matter. So the people will say that Putin can just do whatever he wants, independent of whether or not a state of war exists. I'm going to disagree. That's not really true. So here's the policies this affects. First, a state of war would allow them to enact stop-loss policies. That means conscripts which are now being demobilized as of May 1st will not necessarily be demobilized. They can choose to keep them in service. Second, it means contract servicemen, which is a lot of military fighting, 
can't resign. Contract servicemen can actually refuse to fight. They can quit. I mean, the Russian military makes it very hard for them, but nonetheless, they can... Uh, and and there, there are some reports of this actually happening. So this is mm-hmm. not just hypothetical. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, because there's no state of war. And they can tear up their contract and say, I'm leaving the Russian military. You know, thank you for rotating me back to Russia. I don't want to go back to the fighting. And I'm going to tear up my agreement. Yes, there'll be penalties for them. Uh, but it, but they're probably not as bad as dying. So point being, uh, it changes the legal status of uh, combatants exchanges their options, what they can do, then, you know, the Russian leadership can enact a partial mobilization. And they're probably going to go after uh, men with recent uh, military experience. And the, pro- the notion that the, anybody you just bring in, that you mobilize, is untrained and suddenly you have to train them, that's not exactly true. Actually, Russia has a lot of manpower this personnel who have just left the military or going to be rotating out of the military or have rotated out in the last year. And they haven't suddenly forgotten all the skills that they had before. Okay. So the retraining period. In, in other words, if, if you used to drive a tank a few years ago, you still know how to drive a tank, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're, look, they're, they're demobilizing uh, right now around 130,000 conscripts. I mean, you're going to seriously argue to me that the day after these people forgot how to shoot an AK-47 or drive a tank. And that's not that's not the case. These are perishable skills, but they're not that instantaneously perishable. Um, and a lot of positions that they may that they may look to fill may not be uh, that technically demanding. So long story short, they do have access to uh, they will have access to uh, manpower with recent experience and and very likely uh, some veterancy as well, depending on uh, who they choose to mobilize if they go that route. They've already been trying a shadow mobilization behind the scenes the last uh, month, month and a half by offering short-term service, service contracts down to four months for a lot of money to try to pick up men with uh, prior service experience and see if they can get them to sign up as contract servicemen. Uh, Russian formations have a substantial percentage in them of conscripts, particularly in the ground forces. And many of them could be up to 30, 35 percent. So they have deployed, let's say, two battalion tactical groups from each regiment and brigade. But back in the main formation, there are very likely to be some officers with another battalion plus staffed by conscripts, potentially uh, hundreds of them. And now uh, conscripts which cannot legally be used in offensive operation outside of Russia's borders, unless there's a time of war, could now be used. They can be put together with other forces and the rest of the formation could potentially be deployed. So it opens up access to another part of the force, right? Now, in practice, everything is harder. I'm painting this with a very broad brush. But there are several layers to this that I think folks need to appreciate. And this is before we even get to the the, the notion of a broader mobilization is getting more manpower and pulling equipment out of uh, reserve storage areas, which, you know, is very much a mixed bag proposition. You don't know what's there that's active and serviceable, and you don't know to what extent the Russian military can actually conduct mobilization. Remember, this is not the Soviet army. It's not organized to take in vast amounts of manpower and short notice and, and to sort them into units with cadre staffs. That being true, the Russian military doesn't need to go through that process at all. It doesn't need that much more manpower per se. 
in order to uh, replenish ranks and necessarily sustain this war, but it definitely needs a lot more than it has now. Sorry, it's a bit of a long explanation, but it's a complex topic, and, and I'm seeing, you know, I'm seeing divergent takes on it. Yeah, no, this is really fascinating. I, I put out a long thread uh, about a week ago explaining why I think the full mobilization sort of conscripts, uh, massive conscripts and drafts was very unlikely. But but you are suggesting actually a middle ground between doing nothing and doing a full mobilization, which is to declare a state of war and uh, bring in uh, some some people with recent experience, either conscripts or contracts that have left the service. And, you know, I think that that, that certainly is very plausible and uh, doesn't necessarily create a lot of political problems for them, right? Yeah, so I think the full mobilization is kind of uh, a bit of a canard, right? And and I, I don't see that as likely at all. But the significant question is whether or not he's going to declare a state of war, because that then changes things a lot procedurally. And, you know, whether or not they will then shift to, to uh, using conscripts and raising Manning by in ways other than simply trying to attract people with money, right? Because I, I don't know how many people they're going to get by just raising the amount of money they're willing to pay per month. Uh, but, th- but there are significant effects to this approach. And the main, w- the main impact is that it will substantially alter our expectations for how long Russia can sustain this war. doesn't mean Russia's going to win it. It does mean they're going to do great in some follow-on offensives. But it means that this war is going to drag on uh, much longer, and it means that they will have potentially enough manpower to sustain this fight, even if it's a losing fight for a considerable period of time. Remember, I always, I always say annoyingly that everything's contingent, so I don't like predicting what's going to happen you know, at the actual tactical operational level. I'm just trying to suggest, you know, if we take the art of the long view, what the implications of that would be relative to where we are right now. Got it. Um... Let's talk about Snake Island. Uh, we had a lot of activity in that area over the last 48 hours. The Ukrainians have achieved some uh, major successes, taking out a TOR air defense system with the TB2 and then doing uh, a heavy ordnance uh, strike um, with SU-27s um, against some positions there. And now the Russians are claiming that they've actually abandoned the, the island uh, and uh, it appears to be uninhabited. At this point, there's still some debate uh, about a helicopter that was shot down, whether it was a Ukrainian helicopter or the Russian helicopter. Both sides are claiming that they took out the others. Um, MI-8 uh, troop-carrying helicopter that was uh, trying to land forces on the island. Um, what's the significance if, if the island has been abandoned, um, as the Russians say, saying that it has been, uh, how critical was it to the enforcement of the Black Sea blockade? Uh, what do you make of that? Yeah, it's a story that's gotten some attention, mainly because a lot of videos have uh, bled all over Twitter of Ukrainian TB2s striking Russian forces on Snake Island and uh, actually Ukrainian Su-27s conducting a strike and so on and so forth. And it's been a bit of a puzzling situation to sort out, but I think my impression of what happened was Russian force originally ended up on Snake Island. If you remember at the beginning of the war, they approached the, the small Ukrainian contingent there, uh, demand they surrendered, uh, that they surrender. Uh, ultimately, I think the Marines there did surrender. 
then the Russian military employs some small number of units on the island. Snake Island is tiny. It's really a rock. I'm not going to say that technically because it was the subject of a very long legal dispute between Ukraine and Romania as to whether or not it was an island or a rock under international law, which I will not go into further because everyone here will fall asleep and leave this actual uh, Twitter chat if they hear that story. But suffice it to say, it's very small and uh, not very inhabitable. So uh, it looks like they place some run- a few Russian units there, tiny contingent with some air defense, very vulnerable out in the sea. I don't think Mitri was that relevant to enforcing the blockade for a simple reason. A Tor M2 and the Strela M short-range air defense system, these systems have tiny air defense ranges, don't enforce much of anything, and it's not like there were coastal defense cruise missile batteries or over-the-horizon radar or much of anything else on that island. So I'm not really sure necessarily uh, what relevance played. On the other hand, maybe they had a vision of the future of the things they were going to emplace on it. And if they had secure control, some of these other capabilities would have been deployed there down the line. So long story short, uh, Ukrainian forces came after these this tiny number of uh, air defense systems on this rock with uh, TB2s, took them out. And then that left the Russian contingent completely open to airstrike. And uh, after losing those air defenses, they essentially became uh, prey to various Ukrainian capabilities. And then it was hard to tell if the Russian military was trying to reinforce the island or if they're trying to evacuate the island from the videos. But in general, their position, they're completely deteriorated. And to me, well, the videos reflect a basic problem with, with the Russian approach, which is sort of like send one unit without air cover then send another unit without air cover and support to try to help that one, then send a third unit in a helicopter to try to figure out what happened with special forces and maybe try to rescue who's left, and so on and so forth. And in many ways, the challenge they've had in this war is that they're masters of piecemeal operations without good integration. You know, just sending in units piecemeal. And in the case of Snake Islands, I think it was pretty easy for Ukrainian TB2s to just ambush them as they were trying to get stuff either on or off the island. At least that's my pers- that's just my perspective based on what I saw. Obviously, this is very, very imperfect uh, impression of one person looking at tactical vignettes. So, so in, in, your, uh, in your sense is that this was a great moral victory, perhaps, but not necessarily a strategic victory to drive Russians off the island? I mean... I'm sure driving them off the island helps, but I didn't I didn't see any particular capabilities on the island that uh, made it that significant or relevant. The island is located along a maritime route, that's for sure. But the Russian military doesn't necessarily need that island, if anything. To, from my point of view, it was a huge liability because it's basically a completely indefensible position. Right. Tiny islands like that, tiny flat islands are, are incredibly vulnerable. And. Uh, it doesn't look like they were providing anything in the way of uh, air uh, air coverage for it. And it didn't look like the Russian Navy really came to the rescue either, other than those uh, Raptor boats, which themselves are very vulnerable to air attack. Well, the reason they didn't is, of course, because they tried to before and they got the Moskva sinking as a result. Right. So they're trying to stay far away uh, out of the range of the Neptune batteries right now. Yeah, it's, it was still debated where the Moskva actually was when it was hit. 
Um, but as you probably know, if you've seen my comments this past week, as I tried to circle back to the Moskva, uh, I had a lot of questions about to what extent Moskva was really operational when we look at uh, its radar and its radar as it pertained to its air defense systems and whether or not the Moskva really was providing air defense coverage in that part of the sea. That's, that's uh, an area, at least, of speculation. Um, we, we, of course, are still trying to get a guest in that, that is an expert on this, um, and uh, we're hoping that we can get him in to chat about this. If not, we, we may uh, just do a recording and add it to the podcast later on. Um, but let me ask you, Mike, about TB2s. You, you made a comment about that last week. But, you know, this week we saw some major developments in the field of uh, unmanned aerial vehicle warfare uh, because we had the Ukrainians do a successful strike against surface um, uh, uh, surface uh, vehicle, uh, surface ship um, with regards to those uh, high-speed boats, Uh it may have taken down the Hilo, the MI-8 Hilo. We don't yet have a confirmation on that yet. It has taken out air defenses. It's been used extensively in this war on both sides to do artillery targeting. Um, do you think that we're seeing before our eyes here uh, warfare being fundamentally changed with the introduction of these unmanned aerial vehicle platforms beyond just the um, uh, the use of them for reconnaissance and kind of uh, singular strikes against ground forces that we have seen over the last 20 years? Uh, no, but, you know, most of the time when you ask me, are we seeing anything in warfare fundamentally change? My answer typically is no. Um, I, I think uh, UCAVs and, and various armed drones of this type are ultimately remotely piloted aircraft. And they have a lot of advantages to them. They're often cheaper. They're cheaper to maintain because uh, of the pilots. So they're not necessarily cheaper as a whole. When we've done studies in the United States that have been published on cost of operating things like uh, Predator drones and the like relative to manned aviation, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, it's a lot. It's a. It's not as cheap as you might think. Of course, it depends on who's operating the platform. I think the main advantage of these systems is obviously uh, they're lucrative relative to similar types of manned aviation, like let's say helicopters, they have much longer endurance and loiter time. And uh, it's easy to use them from the standpoint of cost imposition in a conflict where attrition matters, because you can trade this platform for almost anything else on the battlefield and uh, the loss of the drone, well, it's easier to replace and it's a much cheaper system than almost anything it has to engage and fight. So it's pretty advantageous. I, I didn't see anything particularly new and exciting on Snake Island. That's the way the war's been going. Ukrainians have used TB2s pretty effectively, to be honest, more effectively than I anticipated. Uh, on the other hand, there's strong suspicion that they lost quite a few from, their, from the first batch that they had as well. And that these drones are likely from a second batch that they received recently from Turkey. That's why we have pauses in, in video feed for some weeks and then uh, a return to drone strike footage. That's one thesis. Um, I'm not going to say that I kind of support that discussion either way. But uh, in, in terms of 
drones in general, well, they mostly fall down to two categories. To me, the UCAVs are less interesting than loitering munitions, all right? And those, those, I think, have an even more significant effect. And now that you see that Ukraine has increasingly gained access to Western loitering munitions, Russia's been using them too, to, to a limited extent since the beginning of the war, uh, they could have significant, tag, significant tactical impact over time. Well, well, let me just ask you a direct question, not related to this war, but we, we have seen the Russians um, take significant casualties as a result of these strikes across a variety of weapons platforms. I mean, how vulnerable is the United States military to the same tactics that can be used by a variety of actors that are buying up TB2s right now? Um, pretty vulnerable, especially to things like loitering munitions. I think most militaries are. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe less so to TB2s, but U.S. military often has the expectation of operating in an environment where it has complete air superiority, right? And that's why you don't see nearly as much air defense and support capabilities in U.S. ground formations. And I often think that, at least from my point of view, this is a mistake that that Western militaries make because you can't you can't just take air superiority for granted, um, even though I think we definitely have the most capable air power and air power projection capability in the world. That still is not something that you can assume, especially early on in any battle space. And air superiority may not deliver uh, may not deliver protection from various types of small drones uh, and uh, off the shelf commercial off the shelf systems. For example, you see Ukrainians repurposing old Soviet anti tank grenades and dropping them from commercial drones onto Russian vehicles. And these are tiny, tiny drones. I mean, you're not you're not necessarily going to solve them by having uh air superiority or air dominance of the on the battle space so uh it's a much longer conversation probably certainly merits its own podcast i to be frank i've had these discussions um fairly recently after the nagorno-karabakh war where folks asked the same question have drones changed or revolutionized everything and the answer is no but they do have an effect on on aspects of modern warfare yeah and particularly now that we're seeing them impact not just ground forces but naval forces as well and, and perhaps even aviation. Um, the uh, account, Twitter account that I'm sure you know well, Jomini uh, W, um, has some really interesting insights into this war and the correlation of forces. And this individual had a great threat um, the other day about how this offensive uh, may see a long drawn out siege of the urban cluster that is ranging from Krematorsk to Lusychansk, uh, um, and um, that this can go on for many months. Uh, do, do you agree with that, um, that th- this is a possibility here, that um, we're going to have a lot of urban fighting in that area uh, for many, many weeks? Yeah, so Germany is a good colleague. And, and, of, and of course, Germany's been long dead. He's a famous military right. that's, that's that's not that's not that's not the man's actual name. I just want to make that clear. Um, and I'm not actually from a prior sanctuary in colleagues with Germany, but uh, uh, but the person who runs that account is, is a good colleague. I think he does good analysis, and I think uh, I'm generally on the same page with this offensive uh, going being a dragged out affair, and that's going to shift. 
And at various points, we're going to have claims that this offensive has failed, this offensive is making progress, Ukrainian counteroffensives are making progress, you know, and, and, and so on and so forth. And all of those at various points will be true. But I think my disappointing answer is that this offensive and what gains the Russian military is or is not able to make is not going to be decided in days or even necessarily weeks. And it's a question of whether they'll be able to hold on to the gains they make and, and to what extent Ukrainian force can sustain counteroffensives as well. And it's likely to shift. So Ukrainian military may make some gains outside of a Zoom and the Russian military might make substantial gains uh, around Severodonetsk. It's hard to say how it will play out, but I think it's, it's important that uh, the expectations are, are, are set correctly, that this is something that's likely to drag on. And of course, because I said that, you know, Putin will come out tomorrow and just declare a victory. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I don't think that's going to happen. I just don't think that's going to happen. But yeah, well, he can declare a limited victory with Mariupol. There's talk that maybe they'll even do some sort of limited parade there. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're right, is this battlefield going to start looking a lot more like the Battlefield, we, we, battlefield we've seen for the last eight years in the Donbass from 2014, uh, where it's semi-frozen. You know, obviously this is, this would be across a much larger line of effort, uh, line of contact, and much more active with artillery and air power than we've seen in the past. But if you're not going to see sort of this massive move, troopments making significant gains in tens of kilometers. Uh, is it going to be much more static volleys of artillery fire? Uh, I don't think so. I think it's too soon to make this kind of claim. I suspect that this offensive will drag on and there will be genuine shifts in territorial control between Russia and Ukraine. And it remains to be seen how both sides are going to invest in their staying power in the war. At least the, the Ukrainian and the Western strategy is very clear. Ukraine has mobilized personnel. It has a solid manpower base. And with access to Western equipment and most importantly ammunition, because the most decisive element in this war is effective use of artillery. Sorry to all the folks that think it's uh, drones and drone videos on Twitter. That's important for the information environment, sure. But it's artillery that's doing most of the work in this war. Classic, traditional Soviet, actually. Most of it's Soviet artillery. Now now increasingly some Western-made. And the most important thing to artillery, uh, beyond uh, having effective targeting, is ammunition. And having access to this gives Ukraine strong staying power and prospects for retaking territory in the war. That said, our conversation earlier in this, in this podcast about whether or not Russia will declare a state of war, will enact some form of partial mobilization, and how they're going to try to address some of their manpower issues is very relevant and very actual to trying to assess to what extent Russia is staying power in this conflict and how long they could sustain it and whether or not it'll settle into war of attrition, and what Russia's prospects are in that war of attrition. Got it. Um, any last thought, Mike? Um, we, the guest that we were trying to get is actually uh, has not been able to log into Twitter. Uh, I'll record an interview with him separately, and we'll release it as a podcast 
shortly. But um, any last thoughts on where this war is going? Anything that we haven't covered yet? I mean, I I think we've we've had a really good discussion. Um, it's it's a shame that our colleague couldn't join us because of technical issues today. Now, I I think we've you've covered it on the whole quite well. A big question is um, if we look out into the future trajectory of this war, whether or not we see the two sides' objectives and demands in any way overlap that would suggest settlement. My answer is going to be very pessimistic. The answer is no. Uh, Ukrainian position is, I think, at a bare minimum, they want to retake territory loss since February 23rd. That's going to be quite incompatible with the Russian demand to take the Donbass and hold on to the southern territories of Kherson and Zaporizhia that they've captured, pleased in piecemeal. And by the way, we had Zelensky declare this week how he defines victory, which is Russia going back to the February 2022 borders and ending hostilities, which um, doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon. Right. So I actually think it's quite likely that Russia will attempt to annex either the Donbass or the South or both. At the very least, we'll set up the South now as um, their own people's republics. And I don't see much compatibility in uh, how Russia sort of defines victory with how Ukraine defines victory. So that basically tells me that this war is going to go on. And there may be operational pause in it as both sides build up for offensives down the line. It obviously depends on what they do with with a force structure and, and the like. But um, I guess my, my, my outlook has been consistently quite dour. So that's what tells me about the long-term prospects in this conflict. And, and last question here. Who do you think uh, gets, a, gets a more favorable outlook here the longer this goes on, the Ukrainians or the Russians, given that the Ukrainians are getting a significant amount of military help? They still have a lot of um, personnel resources, and the Russians um, obviously have all the issues that we've discussed. Um. I'm going to give you a bit of a, a caveat and answer. I think on the whole right now, under these conditions, it's definitely the Ukrainian side of, of the, of, in this conflict. However, um, perhaps paradoxically, it is often the losing side that gets to decide when the war is over. What do you mean by that? Well... Uh, what I mean by that is the side that's losing has to be the one that eventually concedes for a war to be over, more often than not. So in other words, Putin has to decide to cut his losses and, and leave. Yeah, meaning he could be losing for a very long time. Yeah. And, and, and even, even if Russian forces are in the most dire shape, they, you could still look to continue the conflict in a number of ways or to escalate it. So that's what I mean by that. And at what point do you think uh, he's going to start to have major issues with equipment, particularly with missiles, uh, precision guided munitions? Uh, you know, there's been a lot of speculation that maybe the stockpile is already low. Uh, we don't know, of course, but at some point they're going to run out of these things and their capacity to produce them is very limited given the uh, the embargo on microchips. 
I mean, a long-range precision guy weapons, definitely. Although we don't, I don't think we know what the stockpiles were to start with. And, and, and I, too, am guilty of some of that speculation while recognizing that we're, we're trying to figure out what they have left without actually knowing necessarily what they started with. But eventually, if they're not running alone now, they definitely will be. On uh, uh, materiel, well, in certain categories of equipment, they've lost about 15 to 20% of their active force. And it's not critical, but it's definitely going to bite over time. And looking out over the coming months and years, the big question will be, what, what, is the, what is the likely impact of all the sanctions, the export controls, and cutting Russia off of uh, Western components, uh, including uh, support for the machine tools that they use? And that definitely is going to affect the Russian defense industry. But I think the community has yet to figure out to what extent, how, and so on and so forth. So that's a current area of debate and research. It's a little early. Uh, it's a little early to tell. It's going to be a significant impact. I think that we often talk about this conflict in terms of potentially being a war of attrition. But if you look and assume it's going to last uh, a much longer period of time, that's essentially two campaigns premised on a strategy of exhaustion, Russia trying to exhaust Ukraine and the, the West trying to exhaust Russia. Fascinating as always, Mike. Um, that's a wrap from us today, folks. Please listen to the recording. We'll, we'll try to put it out shortly. It will include an interview with our colleague on the Moskva sinking and what's happening with the Russian Black Fleet. Uh, it'll be, I'm sure, very fascinating. Uh, but for now, have a good evening and uh, thanks for joining us again. Take care. Thanks for having me back on. Thanks. And we're back now with a new guest, retired Navy Captain Chris Carlson, formerly with the Defense Intelligence Agency and Naval Intelligence, and an expert on anti-ship missiles. And Chris, thank you for joining us today. Uh, I really wanted to talk to you because you had written a great report on how Moskva, this flagship um, of the Black Sea Fleet, may have been sunk by the Ukrainian Neptune missiles. Uh, anti-ship missiles. And I wanted to discuss that with you. A lot of people were puzzled uh, by the fact that the ship obviously has a variety of anti-air um, defense systems, uh, even though it's quite old, uh, built in the 70s. Nevertheless, um, it has significant capabilities, uh, including an S-300 system, even on board Maritime One. Uh, so what, what uh, did you find in your analysis? Okay. The big point that I heard Michael talk about was, were the air search radars energized? Um, that's one I'm not going to be able to help you with. I'm going to assume that she was fulfilling her role as an air defense coordinator because she had the most powerful radar, assuming it worked, she had the most powerful radar out there in what NATO calls a top pair. Um, it's a humongous fly swatter on, on the main mast and it's a, a three-dimensional air search and it has quite a long range. But that's not the radar that would see a sea skimmer like Neptune or Harpoon. If you were to look at both of the main radars on a Slava class cruiser, there's this great big thing in front, if you will. And then there are two smaller arrays behind them those smaller ones actually have a surface search capability. 
Um, the one on the top pair is the old big net. And the one on the uh, top steer is a head net A or B. We don't know which one exactly, I think. You have to look at the, uh, its transmission qualities. Those specifically look low. So if she was radiating, one of those two radars, in theory, should have gotten contact. I mean, a Neptune is a very small target. It's not super stealthy. It's, it's, it's relatively small. And so you would expect to pick this up as it came over the radar horizon. But the bottom line is, is it doesn't really matter if it was radiating or not. She did not react. So either the radars didn't work and she didn't see it, or the crew didn't process and react in time to deal with the incoming threat. And in both cases, that would show us why the S300 top dome director and the uh, OSA MA point defense SAM directors were in their normal stowed position facing aft. They were never brought online. So whether or not the radars were on, they didn't see it, or if they saw it, saw the missiles coming, they didn't react fast enough to be able to engage with defensive armament. Do you think it was complacency? They didn't think that Neptunes were operational. Um, they knew that the Ukrainians hadn't yet brought them back online. The plan was to do so in April, but um, maybe they thought that the war uh, prevented them from um, getting those, um, uh, um, uh, those um, uh, systems um, up and running, um, or was it just uh, uh, incompetence or both? I'm, for the Russians, I'm going to go down two paths, if you will. One, Moscow was the original Slava, okay? The very first of the class, okay? She was commissioned late 1982. She has yet to see a full-up overhaul. They, they worked on the propulsion plan to return that to technical readiness. That means that it, it will work. And then there's been rumors uh, and articles put out that money for other aspects of an overhaul were siphoned away, <laughs> that the money was stolen. And so she has not had a major overhaul and she's what, 40 years old? So you have to ask the question, what kind of material condition is he in? And remember, Russians aren't horribly big on at-sea maintenance. They do most of their stuff in port. Uh, so how well are things working? And then how much training have, these, have the crew got in air defense? Um, if, they've been, if the Russians have been skimping on operational things like dedicated training, then and you have, let's say you have new operators on top of that, they don't understand their, their pieces of equipment. They don't know how to work with it confidently. It takes them time. And that's a bit of a problem because you don't have a lot of time when you have a Mach 0.8 missile coming over the horizon. You, you need to be able to react with confidence and relatively quickly. That comes with training. How much, how much time would they have if they had seen it? Uh, what? Let's assume 
20 miles, they'd have a, they'd have a, a couple of minutes. Okay, so very, very quick. Yeah, it would be very fast. And that's the other thing that I'm really kind of concerned about is because the, the director on the pop group, as NATO calls it, there's an actual antenna on top of it, not just the directing aspect for the OSA-MA rock missiles. That's a scanning antenna. It's called BAZA. And its main purpose is to completely eliminate reaction time by transferring contact from one of the main radars to the pop group to be able to point. So if they were in a threat environment, that thing should have been spinning. And they should have seen, and I mean, that's a dedicated sea skimmer looking radar. They should have seen her, the missiles coming over uh, with that system. Again, there's no indication it was operating. But, you know, uh, I, I read your report with great interest, and then I heard uh, an interview with one of the Ukrainian commentators on it saying, well, uh, the ship, obviously all the photographs we have of the ship is when it was hit already and on fire. And the commentator was saying that at that moment, you have to assume that the ship no longer had power and that's why it wasn't spinning. You can't necessarily assume that it hadn't been spinning prior to getting hit. Uh, how do you respond to that? When you, look at the, when you look at the antennas, all of them are in their stowed position, including the Baza, it's facing aft. Now there's no spinning down, if you will. You lose power, you're done. Um, so that's what, and the other thing is that the SAN4, the OSA-MA hatch is not opened and the missile, missiles have not been extended. Okay, this is a mechanical launcher. It's stowed below. That circular area opens up in half. The missiles come up and train. They're not there. Therefore, this system was not engaged. How much of this do you think is uh, sort of an element of the fact that this is a Black Sea fleet where traditionally they have not had you know, major adversaries, right? It, it, it really is mostly, you know, a pawn for the Russians. The Ukrainians don't have much of the way of the Navy and, you know, other NATO countries um, uh, in, in the Black Sea um, also uh, don't have massive naval assets compared to what they would face, for example, in the Baltic Sea or in the Pacific, um, with the Pacific fleet. Do you think that they've just under-resourced the Black Sea fleet um, uh, uh, because of that, or is this something that could be prevalent across the entire Russian Navy? Parts of it is prevalent across the entire Russian Navy. Uh, maintenance is, is an expensive thing, and it has never been a Russian or Soviet strong point. Um, they've had to push things downrange because they just lack the material and the resources to do it. And that's largely a function of where Putin has put his emphasis. Uh, and for the Russian Navy, that's into submarines. That's really where he's, you know, he's put his big time. I mean, they'd love to build another aircraft carrier. Well, they'd love to get Kuznetsov back. <laughs> but, well, there's that. Um, you know, they wanted to build this ungodly, ugly destroyer, lighter. Uh, all those things got kicked down the road. Um, they had this issue with their Grigoroviches finishing that because... The guys are at war with provided them their propulsion plant. Um, and I'm still waiting for Saturn to 
formally issue their first uh, manufactured uh, propulsion uh, complex. Um, I've seen things saying, yeah, it's, it's almost done, it's ready, and they were showing Putin, and it's like, okay, are you going to start building again? <laughs> so, it, you know, they're, they're concentrating on smaller ships, and they're concentrating on newer ones. So the Black Sea Fleet actually is, I think, done fairly well. It got all three of the Grigoroviches. It's got six of the new kilos that are um, club that capable. Um, and they're, they're getting a couple of other, the smaller uh, boats. And that's probably not bad for the Black Sea. That's a, that's a reasonable foot. And, you know, of course they had uh, Moskva as the flagship. So I wouldn't say the Black Sea was worse off per se than the Baltic or the or the Pacific, they probably weren't as good as the Northern Fleet. But the Northern Fleet has always been kind of you know favored in, in a lot of ways, and the Pacific is still trying to catch up um, now that they're finally getting their uh, Dolgorukis and one of the Yasin M's is supposed to go out there. Um, I'm still waiting for that. Well, the, the, the I mean the Turks have uh, blocked the the Bosporus, right? So right, can get into the Black Sea right now. Um, because of the hostilities. Now, uh, there, there's been a lot of rumors this week about the Admiral Makarov um, uh, being taken down. The Ukrainians have officially denied it in the last uh, 24, 48 hours. Um, do, do you think that the Neptune missiles, first of all, what do you make of the Neptune missiles that are based on the Soviet KH-35 design? How capable are they? And do you think they pose a major threat to the rest of the Black Sea surface fleet? Okay, first off, the Neptune is not based on the KH-35. It's, it's based on the KH-35U, okay. which is an upgraded version of that weapon with a lot further range. Um, you know, this is, this. Uh, people call it the Harpoonski, and that's really kind of what it is. Um, it's a relatively small subsonic, Sea skimming and a ship cruise missile. Uh, the warhead's about 145 kilograms, um, and those are not easy to deal with, but they're not impossible. And, and the funny thing is that the systems on board Moskva were tailored towards the Exocet and the Harpoon. Okay, when you look at the SAN-4, the OSA-MA, and the original OSA system was not sea skimmer capable when it first came out. You know, this is like the third generation of that particular system, and it's specifically designed to go after uh, missiles coming in at 10 meters or less altitude. The Ukraine bird does. It cruises at 10, and it comes down to about three or four in its terminal attack. So, you know, contrary to what some people said, this is not really an old design. This is an updated version. So it's got more range. I'm, the seeker is different and it's got more capabilities in the electronic warfare department. And it, I'm, I'm a little surprised that some people are wondering because we've been seeing test shots of Neptune since uh, I believe late 2017, early 2018. So this thing's been out there for a while. Um, 
not, not operational, uh, though, right? Say again? Not, not operational. I have not seen it operational until they actually said, I think April, March, April, 2022 is when they thought they would bring it online. Right. Um, I've seen lots of brochures for it. Um, they've been marketing this puppy um, to a number of places. And in that PDF, I attached the three slides to the most recent brochure that I found online. Got it. Uh, now, there, there's news now uh, recently that Britain is going to send the Brimstone anti-ship missiles to Ukraine within weeks. Does that change the game at all? How capable are those missiles versus the Neptunes? Well, a Brimstone's really, it, it, think of it as like Hellfire, because that's what it's based on, you know, that they're cousins. Um, and that's really an anti-tank weapon. But if it's got a bulk charge um, explosive warhead, um, it's going to do pretty much uh, a lot of damage to smaller ships because that's what they were designed to do. We made the Hellfire module for the LCS to take out small ships, small boats. It, it'll do that just fine. Um, against, say, a Grigorovich frigate, it'll be, a prob it'll be problematic. It'll be hard because it's a really, really small missile. Uh, but the problem is, is that you're going to be firing it inside the envelope of that vert vertical launch still missile. So it, the question then is, who's the threat to the missile or the carrier? Um, <laughs> and, I don't know. If, the, range, the range is much shorter than the Neptunes, right? Oh, God, yes. Yeah. It's line of sight. Uh, about I If I remember Brimstone correctly, we're talking 20 to 25 kilometers. That's That's, you know... That's, a fe uh, that's an order of magnitude less than the Neptune. Yeah. So, so Chris, let me ask you this. What are the implications of this strike on the Moskva for the rest of the fleet and for their ability to enforce the blockade on the Ukrainian ports, which is currently strag uh, the, uh, strangling the, the Ukrainian economy? They're going to have to actually operate as if they're in a wartime environment. <laughs> Because I'm not sure they really thought that. That may have been part of the problem. I mean, the Ukrainian fleet was, you know, pretty much, it wasn't much to speak of to begin with. But what they did have, you know, as they moved into Nikolaev and other places, they, they were gone. I mean, how much of the Ukrainian fleet still floats? Nothing. So, Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. And there's no submarine threat because the one Foxtrot they got when they took the Crimea. So, you know, from their perspective, what's the threat? And, you know, the, the drone, yeah, that's a big problem, but not necessarily, you know, an existential threat to uh, something as big and as, as, as nasty as a Slava. It's definitely going to be nasty to your Raptors. Don't get me wrong there. And, 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 and your, um, your Baikovs aren't probably going to like it either. <laughs> but those are all smaller. So they were kind of going, well, you know, the Black Sea's ours. And so, because mm -hmm. if you look at some of the um, OSINT tracking with the synthetic aperture radars that H.I. Sutton and others have put out, yeah, you start seeing Moskova kind of hanging out in the same place all the time. Yep. You know, she's got a couple of places she goes back and forth from, and then 
goes in the Sevastopol, you know, refuels, whatever, comes back out and plays in that area. That's their backyard. They think they tend to think they're safe. Well, they they're going the Russian. Right? Yeah, the Russians going to change their mindset. This is a wartime theater, wartime environment for them at sea, and they've got to start paying attention to it. Got it. Well, um, thank you, Chris. Really fascinating discussion. Thanks again, Mike, for for joining in on this chat, and um, we'll see everyone again next week.